This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. Today, we're discussing Richard at the Supreme Court, kind of. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is, of course, Professor Richard Epstein. Here at Hoover, Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow. He's also the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and is a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. And Richard, what I'd actually like to discuss today is an amicus brief you wrote with John Yu surrounding, I think, a little-known tax change that was passed in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the TCGA, in 2017. It's being challenged at the Supreme Court. I know you're not a huge fan of it, um, so let's let's talk about it. It surrounds the mandatory repatriation tax, the MRT. Uh, here's the deal for the uninitiated. One of the things the TCGA did was to start to move the U.S. to a sort of territorial tax system instead of a purely global one. And to do that, it had to look at foreign ownership uh, of corporations and, I suppose, unrealized uh, unrealized earnings that we that money was you know saved overseas and we haven't paid taxes on. So the MRT said, all right, if you own at least ten percent of a controlled foreign corporation, you're going to pay taxes on unearned income um, that we haven't haven't paid taxes on yet, dating back to 1986 up to 2017. It's going to be a one-time tax that you can pay now or over eight years at, at a lower rate. Now, the case here, Richard, involves two petitioners, Charles and Kathleen Moore. They own 11% of a foreign corporation. As a result of the TCGAA, TCGA, they had to pay taxes um, on, on this, this foreign ownership. You and John Yu have written this amicus brief in defense of the Moors with an interesting approach that involves both the nature of taxation and the 16th Amendment. And I can't wait to get into that. But first, I have to know, how did you even come to work on this brief? Well, what happens is, um, you know, we're known in the business. We talk a lot. A little bit, some, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and some 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 guys came up to him and says, look, this is a really important issue. Uh, the issue in the case itself is about $14,000. And the precise question is, if you repatriate 370 or $380 billion without incident, does the entire scheme blow up over the $14,000? Why was this a source of particular irritation? It's because the Moors were told that they had to pay tax on dollars that they could not get out and that they might not ever get out. Uh, the value to them was certainly not the value that it would be if you could sell these shares in the open market because of the restrictions. And so they said, what should happen is, why don't you wait until we actually get the money to tax us? And the government comes back and it says, realization of income in your own hand is not a prerequisite for taxation. Now, if all you were worried about were Mr. and Mrs. Moore, nobody would do anything about this case. But what happened is the general proposition threatens to shake to its foundation the entire system of the Internal Revenue Code. And so lots of people who wrote about this case all said the same way. They said, you know, if the more sink or swim, uh, if they swim, we'd like to have it on a broad ground. If they sink, we'd like it on a very narrow ground. But please don't use this highly idiosyncratic case on a very technical provision about repatriation. And so opine about the basic structure of the Internal Revenue Code. Well, the government writes a brief on the petition for certiorari, and it says, you know, um, we're not talking about the wealth tax in this particular case. We're not talking about the complete taxation of unrealized income. Uh, but these things might come up. And by the way, the definition that we give of income, which is not the realized money from an exchange or from the receipt of cash, would allow us to do all these things. So the alarm bells start to go up. 
And the question then turns out to be, oh, what's going to be the starting point for an income tax analysis? The one model being, if you get cash, that's fine. If you get marketable securities that you could easily sell, that's fine. But if you start getting funny kind of property that you can't do anything with, maybe you postpone the taxation. And the key early case on this was Eisen and McCumber from 1920. My favorite judge, Pitney, is at fault. And there was a stock dividend in that case. So for every two shares you had, you got a third. Uh, but the value of the first two shares went down as the third one went up. And the question, could you be taxed on the third share? And what our good friend, Justice Pitney, said was no. And that was the sort of general principle about realization on a highly specific set of cases, namely recapitalizations, which today under special provisions of the Internal Revenue Code, the reorganization provisions are tax-free so long as you don't take any money out of the corporation. So then how did Richard Epstein get interested in this, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I took taxation in 1966 with Boris Bitcoin. <laughs> tax code uh, looked a little different then. Well, no, it wasn't. That's the interesting thing. And then the next year when I went to USC in 1968, I had a teacher. And I was teaching tax and torts at the same time. And all of a sudden, I got myself into the middle of this battle as a very young and naive person. So what happened is Mr. Bitka starts the class with a case called Drescher. And that's receiving an annuity worth $5,000 subject to some kinds of restrictions. And you could immediately see, do the restrictions matter or does the face value of the thing matter? And they go through all sorts of arguments and they say, well, you know, this is concrete enough. We could tax it as income, even though it's going to be relative over taxation. So then Bitka looks at us in the class and he asks the question. He says, congratulations, you have now been made partner at your law firm. And you look at the Internal Revenue Code and it says, you know, you're taxed on any property that you receive. Well, this partnership interest is something that you receive. And then you start to figure out what it's going to look like. You are now 29 years of age. Your bank account has a whole $50,000 in it. The partnership interest over the next 50 years could easily benefit to you to the tune of several billion do million dollars. Uh, but on the other hand, you may not be able to get it all at once. You may have to reinvest. So the question he asks is, is you have to pay tax on the partnership interest at the time you receive it. And everybody in the class kind of looked at him like he was bonkers. And we all said, of course not. What happens, you wait till the money comes and then you pay the tax. So it turns out that the preference for taxing property in very bad forms is against that preference is very strong. And nobody wants to tax a partnership interest when you don't have liquid assets and you don't know how much it's worth. And so as I started to go out and teach, I realized that this was a dominant theme in the entire Internal Revenue Code. No matter where you look, the code was designed to postpone taxation even after the realization of income, so long as what came in was something that you could not value and you could not sell. And if you got rid of the standard realization requirement, it would mean that the simple appreciation of stock uh, could result in taxation. And so to give you an idea of how much is at stake on this simple kind of proposition, uh, you, Mr. Church, have an art collection of uh, 30 pictures, okay? And that's, let's say, and lots of other stuff. And the government comes along and says, you know, all these pictures have appreciated in value. We know you haven't sold any of them, but what we're going to do is to figure out what the value is and we're going to tax you on the appreciation. And then you have to pay it. You could sell the paintings. You could mortgage the painting. You look around and you say, oh my God, 
I don't know how to value these things. Neither does the government. It's going to take years to do it. This is crazy. And so what happens is typically what we do is we wait until you sell a painting. And if you get in, say, $100,000 and you pay $20,000 for it, the tax is computed as $100,000 less $20,000 or $80,000. So the number of transactions goes down by about 99%. And the complexity for the transactions goes down about 99%. So one thing is a trivial occurrence. And the other thing is World War Three. And the government is saying, well, you know, we can do this. We may not do this. And then somebody says, oh, if we can do this, then what we could do is we could tax your wealth, whether or not you've gotten income. And so what happens is $14,000 worth of dispute shakes the foundation of the entire tax system. And then the question is, how do you deal with this? Well, there are two approaches. The one that was taken by the principal brief in 22 of the amicus briefs or whatever the number was, but not me, was to study the word realization and to say it's such an important concept, you just can't get rid of it in taxation. But there are briefs which say, hey, it really doesn't matter. So what I did was to do something quite different. And this was more me than you, although John was helpful. I said, what's the alternative definition of income? as opposed to the gain that you get from the sale of an asset or the receipt from labor. Uh, the definition dates back to a man named Haig, Robert Haig, uh, supplemented by a man named Henry Simon. And it says, take any two points in time and the accretion of wealth between those two points of times plus the consumption within that time, all of that counts as income, right? And you don't have to have any realization with that. And so if that definition in fact works, what happens is the government can take income as it's defined in the 16th amendment and say, you know, um, unrealized appreciation is income. It doesn't have to be apportioned amongst the state and we can do all of this stuff. But what is it that you're doing? And it turns out that nobody who's in favor of the Haig-Simons formula actually applies the Haig-Simons formula. They do something completely different from that particular formula. And so the purpose of the brief that I wrote was to explain if you try this formula, it's a suicide mission. And then you leave open the question, are suicide missions unconstitutional or are they constitutional? So it was an effort to explain why it is that in the general case, the realization requirement is extremely important and blocking all sorts of nonsense. But in a series of very important but modest situation, it turns out these concerns with liquidation and with valuation simply disappear. And if they disappear, then tax is appropriate. So the way in which this starts to work is you say, look, we have this general definition of taxation, which is figure out what the receipts are and what the costs were and take the difference between them. And that's going to work over a huge number of cases. But where there are exceptions, when you don't have valuation problems or liquidation problems, then the realization requirement can be waived. But in many cases, what we do under the Internal Revenue Code is you get in funny property. Uh, for example, you have a share in a closed corporation and you swap it for a share in another closed corporation. Nobody's sure what the value of the two shares are. Uh, do you have to pay tax on the gain when neither of them work? And what you do is you start saying, well, no, there are theories called reorganizations. So if these shares are changed as part of a restructuring of a company, like a recapitalization, what we do is we postpone the tax, tell people they can't raise their basis, and then wait until they distribute cash and marketable securities, at which point we impose the tax upon them. And that system's been around for 100 years. And so the question is, you really 
on the basis of a series of dicta talking about a $14,000 case want to blow up a system of that kind of magnitude? So the answer that I gave was no. And then I said, well, they said, but there are all sorts of cases that have allowed you to do this. But if you look at them, they don't. So let me give you but one case to show you what the Haig-Simons formula does and what they did in practice. There's a very interesting question of what's the definition of income. And the standard definition of income is money that's received from the combination of capital or labor or both, right? And that kind of covers working on the one hand and investment income on the other. So obviously it's going to cover 99% of what it is that people have. And then you could sort out whether it's immediately taxed or not. Uh, but in this case called Glenshaw Glass, uh, somebody sued in 1946 for treble damages under the antitrust law and then received an award some six years later. And the question is whether or not punitive damages are gains from capital or labor, something combined. And if you look at it, it's just not clear under ordinary language whether this is, quote, a windfall that doesn't fall under either category or not. So what the Supreme Court did is it says we're uncertain of the answer but we're going to give a liberal construction in favor of the government. So we'll treat this stuff as taxed at the time you get the money. And if you note, if you get money, there's no problem in figuring out how much it's worth or no problem about liquidity. But if you want it, that's not using the Haig-Simons formula. What it is is expanding the definition of income and waiting until you get cash. But if you wanted to use this other formula, what you'd do is you'd start with the share of stock. And after the lawsuit was commenced, you'd have to figure out what its change in value was each year, up or down. Now, you try and value a lawsuit, it's absolutely nightmarish. So you'd have to go through this exercise for six separate years. Nobody in his right mind has ever tried that. Nobody wants to try it. And so what you do is you apply the same formula to this rather novel form of income, amount received, less cost. Then there are other cases in which it turns out you're entitled to income. But what you do is you have a coupon on a bar, bond and you give it to your son and he cashes it. And they say, well, is it income to the father who owned the bond or to the son who cashed the coupon? And essentially, the view is what really happened here is dad got the money and then gave a gift to the son. So it should be taxed to him in a high income tax bracket and not to the kid. And then the receipt by the son is called a constructive receipt by the father, which means it's as though he kept the coupon, got paid, and then turned the money over to the son. And that second transaction could either be a gift or payment for services, depending on the circumstances of that case. And that's also right. So you go through all of the cases, none of them actually deal with the taxation of unrealized income. And the point is, that's a lesson well learned. There are other adjustments that you could make that should be made, but please don't make this one because what's going to happen is you're going to increase the incidence of taxation uh, by probably a thousand percent, the difficulty of evaluation by a thousand percent, and you will wipe out entire estates as people have to desperately mortgage and sell their shares at the end of a tax year to figure out what their liabilities are when nobody has any information. And then if the year is 2022, you've actually had huge losses and no Nobody knows whether you could deduct those losses against previous things, store them up, ignore them or whatever. And so it's an absolute nightmare. And so the purpose of our brief was to say, Supreme Court, uh, this realization requirement really matters. And then when there are cases where it doesn't matter, I can tell you what happens. What happens, Richard? Oh, that's such a tough question, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, what happens is you make different kinds of adjustments. So there are two things. 
And they're both in their own ways tricky. One is there's something known as depreciation on assets, right? Mm -hmm. yep. You get something and we know that this thing is going down in value. We don't know what the exact amount of this is. And there is nobody who says that when we're dealing with depreciation, what we do is we calculate the change in the value of the company from year one to year two. Right. It, in terms, it may well be that the asset has appreciated in the time. And we still allow depreciation, maybe not wise, but we do it. And what we do is we figure out what this thing costs. And then we give you a table which tells you how much you can deduct. Well, if you're getting a deduction, you don't have a liquidity problem. Mm -hmm. And if it turns out there's a fixed formula which tells you how much you could take off each year, you don't have a valuation problem. Right. And then what happens is at the end of the day, when you sell the asset off the new basis, uh, it turns out you calculate the gain amount received less the basis. So the system works perfectly well. Now, I'm not going to bore you with this, but if there's borrowed capital, it changes the calculations. And in 1972, I wrote an article esoterically entitled The Application of the Crane Doctrine to Limited Partnerships, where crane was a rule which allowed you to depreciate borrowed assets, which led to all sorts of crazinesses, which we've never fully escaped. It's a tax subsidy at the beginning and a tax penalty at the end. So you mistime these things, but put that aside. Uh, the second piece that we have is there are all sorts of fancy assets that you have, which are derivatives. And that means they have no productive value. They're just, if the value of the shares go up, your derivative will go up. If the value of the shares go down, it will go down, but it's just a piece of paper and it's a trade. And oftentimes what people do is they buy one position and sell another position. And the great fear is if you wait for realization of these assets, what you'll do is you'll sell your losses and hold your gains and get undeserved deductions. So you say, look, this is a portfolio. It's pretty easy to value these things because they're all financial assets and they're all traded on exchange. You know exactly what they're worth. I don't care whether you hold it or whether you sell it. What we will do is we will net out the gains and losses from your portfolio for a given year and tax you on that. And since the assets are perfectly liquid and the valuation problems are zero, it becomes a very useful way to prevent tax evasion. So the way in which you want to put it is this change off the realization requirement is a Pareto improvement, makes everybody better off and nobody worse off, a more reliable tax system. Whereas everything I've worried about before is a Pareto disaster. And so you don't want to do this. So what you do is you treat the tax code as a series of approximations, trying to figure out how you get closer to the ideal mode of taxation. You start with a definition of income, but that's not the optimal form. And then you make these deductions. And if you actually study the code synoptically over many years, what you see is there's a constant change often by legislation or by revenue rulings issued by the Internal Revenue Service, in which for the most part, they move this stuff at the general level to very good positions. At the same time, you get a series of tax subsidies, which I don't talk about in this paper, two rapid depreciation allowances, uh, capital gain instead of ordinary income treatment for certain kinds of resources. Those are separate problems and you can try and solve them. And in fact, you know, when I was doing a lot of tax work in the 1970s, I spent a lot of time on limited partnerships and the simple question as to whether or not a general partner of a limited partner when he sells out a lot of money, is he really getting an investment like everybody else, which is a capital gain? Or is he getting a deferred payment for service, which is ordinary income, or some combination of the two? Right. I mean, those are hard, interesting questions, but that's not the ones we're facing. And so in effect, what we say is 
if you look at this structure, it turns out it's a very good structure in the general part. And the last thing you want to do is to apply the Haig-Simons formula. When it turns out, if you actually look at the cases that are said to apply it, there isn't a single one of them which actually taxes unrealized depreciation on an incremental basis on an annual calendar. So uh, be wise, do not do this. It's not that the formula is infinitely rigid. You can find exceptions to it, but they're principled exceptions to it. And they fit the general theory. And basically, modifications of statutory schemes should always be designed to create positive sum games, whether you're talking about upper airspace, whether you're talking about water rights, whether you're talking about land and mortgages, that's the hope that you want and you can do it in the tax world. So that's the part that I wrote um, and John helped. Um, I can tell you if you want what the part that John wrote and sort of I, I do. Helped. I do want to end on that, Richard, because I think it's interesting to get into an actual 16th Amendment argument. And unsurprisingly, to understand what's going on here, we need a little bit of, of history of the 16th Amendment, because you would do right in the brief, right? The Supreme Court can strike this down and still maintain, you know, it's 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 acceptance of the uh, of an income tax and, and the rest of it yeah. without running afoul of the 16th Amendment. So how is yeah. that? Well, the 16th Amendment just says you don't have to apportion money, mm -hmm. income, um, as you do with respect to direct taxes. The definition of a direct tax, you get a lot of words, but it boils down to poll taxes on individuals and real estate taxes on land. Mm -hmm. Early on, there was a question of whether or not you apply the direct tax to carriages that were done. And they refused to do that because they were frightened to death. And that whereas the land that you have in various states is relatively constant. In one state, you could get 10 times as many carriages as you can in another. And if you play the apportionment game, each of the carriages in the state with abundance of them would be subject to a tiny tax. But with land, they were willing to do that. And the argument was, uh, we want a higher rate of taxation on the poorest states. You hear what I said, poorest state. Because when they come into the union, we do not want the tax system to be a device which would allow us to shift money uh, from rich state to poor states. Essentially, we got two guys and they're buying insurance policies. We want each of them to pay a premium in proportion to the benefits they get. And so this thing really has some currency at a time when state boundary lines were really thought important. As you go to the 21st century, it's clear that all of this stuff about states being independent units has less grand political significance, even though it's immensely important, obviously, in everybody's day in life. And so what happens is there's a case called Pollock against Farmers Loan. And this is a decision decided in 1895. And it asks a deceptively simple question to which everybody, in my view, has given the wrong answer. That's a promising way of beginning, right? Uh, we know that a tax on land is, in effect, going to be a direct tax. And so now somebody leases the land. And the question is, if you lease the land, is the rent that you get from the lease, is that going to be a direct tax? So it has to be a portion or is it going to be ordinary income? So it doesn't have to be a portion. And if you ask the question in that form, you can't answer it. Now, why is that? Well, it turns out there are all sorts of leases 
Uh, there's a document known about triple net leases. And, you know, uh, you could borrow property, I mean, rent property, and you could agree to pay the taxes on the property. And so the landlord gets less rent. And you could agree to pay for the insurance on the property. So again, if you're bearing that cost, the landlord gets less. And you could pay for the services on the property, which again would reduce the rent. That would be the triple net lease. Or you could do it the other way. Well, in many cases, when you teach landlord-tenant law, what you say is the landlord is not only supplying space, but he's applying services, which is common, right? The common areas, the upkeep and so forth. Whereas in some lease, the landlord just simply collects a rent for the use of property. Well, if it's the use of property only, then the direct tax seems to be a tax on the rental. But if you're throwing in a service component, that should be much more difficult to classify. Anyhow, the Supreme Court by a 5-4 vote said it's a direct tax. And bells and whistles went off throughout the United States. Mm -hmm. And what John did, it's just a simple point, but it was incredibly clever, is he said, you look at all the debates that took place when we had the 16th Amendment. And essentially, the debate was whether or not you overturn Pollock and Farmer's loan and say that you can tax the income from real estate under a lease arrangement as ordinary income. And he said, you go back and you read anything you want on that debate by anybody at any time in any way. And the only thing they are debating is that question. He said, nobody ever once asked the question of whether or not unrealized appreciation on stock should be regarded as taxable income. So if you have a text which is a little bit squishy as uh, the original 1913 income tax is, you read it in light of the debate which informed this stuff, and you don't see a lake to stand on for a general non, uh, for getting rid of the realization requirement. But what you can do is just say, as these instruments start to evolve, it turns out when you get novel circumstances, if it doesn't defend any fundamental principles of taxation, you could do what I did. So essentially the two halves of the brief are designed to complement one another. And the hope is that it will scare the Supreme Court off of making some really large statement about realization is irrelevant, at which point the dangers that you can see from a Biden Congress or from a Sanders tax bill or from Elizabeth Warren or from Emanuel Says is just enormous. I think we're right on this particular point. And I think it was important not just to talk about what we mean by the term realization, which is an important issue, but important to explain that the alternative theory of taxation, which the government proposes, is completely unworkable and historically untenable. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. As always, you can learn more if you head over to Richard's column, The Libertarian, which we publish at definingideas at hoover.org. If you found our conversation thought-provoking, please share it with your friends, rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. We'll talk at you next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we generate and promote ideas advancing freedom. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.